What did you think? You have a you have a look, Isabel. The last third of the book? Yeah, I agree. Creepier in a good way or in a bad way? In a, it, yes, as, as essentially a story at Christmas Eve or end of fire should be, to quote I'm the very start. I'm yeah. slightly embarrassed in it, but I don't completely understand what happened in the end. Really? Yes. Huh. Huh. You should go back to your little world of theater then. <laughs> um, does anyone? People have been arguing about this for... Um, not quite the 114 years they should have been arguing about it, but for about 75 years. It makes me feel a little um, Well, people argued about the fifth postulate for a couple of millennia, and never mind. Um, people argued about negative numbers for hundreds of years, but we have no trouble with them. Um, what did other people think? <laughs> Did everyone finish? I don't want to give spoilers. Anyone not? Okay, so it's worth it. You have the attestation from people who found it creepy but don't understand what happened. But did you still find it creepy, Jesse? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you understand what happened, Isabel? Um, in the very last page? Yeah. I mean, that would be the place where you're really puzzled, right? The very last page. No, just did you understand? <laughs> Just answer the question, please, ma'am. <laughs> no, I mean, just why what happened happened. I mean, there, there are the facts, and then there's the causes. Uh-huh. Okay. So um, that's one possibility. Okay, for the two of you who came um, today and haven't finished, you really should try to finish it by Wednesday. Um, has everyone else finished? It's... Uh, um, have you guys seen the YouTube about uh, the, the anti-spoiler public message YouTube? No. Um, it's pretty good. You should look it up. Um, it's actually a lot of uh, famous actors um, talking about the tragedy of spoilers huh. and how one, one reenactment is a guy saying, now this isn't really a spoiler, but, and then whoever it is just says, stop right there, buddy. Um, this isn't really a spoiler, but is a spoiler. Um, I think it's like the Directors Guild and the Screenwriters Guild of America is the parody um, producer of this YouTube. So there's spoilers um, for those of you who haven't finished, and it really would spoil it. Well, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe that's part of the puzzle about this. Um, but that's why I said that, in fact, the book is somehow only finished when James dies. Um, because when James dies, um, we can't ask him to explain what some people find puzzling and others don't. Um, what happened was basically he published this story, um, what, 18 years before he died. Um, and people liked it. And they basically thought they understood what was going on. And then some people realized <laughs> after he died, which I think was part of his deviousness, um, that they were sure they knew what was going on. But their friends or frenemies were sure that the exact opposite of what they thought happened happened. Um, and they were just as sure. And um, then some people started thinking, well, that was the point, that James wrote something that um, was supposed to um, 
be, well, a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you looked at it. Um, but then others thought, no, um, he clearly wasn't doing that. And it was only if you looked at it that way that you thought that James was trying to write something ambiguous. But in fact, he wasn't trying to write something ambiguous at all. Um, and if it was ambiguous, it was a mistake on his part. Um, so then we got into a kind of meta duck and meta rabbit. Um, that is, there were those who saw that it, who saw the turn of the screw as a duck of. There were those who saw the turn of the screw as a duck rabbit, and those who saw the turn of the screw as um, I don't know what would be the opposite of a duck rabbit. Uh, maybe I think rabbit. maybe maybe but rabbit. <laughs> no, I think maybe it's it's a what is it a turducken. Huh. Um, so some sort is a turducken and some sort is a duck rabbit. Do people know what a turducken is? It's a truly gross. Um, they added thing. a layer. They added um, a Cornish hen. No. Yeah. So now there's a Cornish hen inside. Well. It's like a turducken or something. Yeah. So turduckhenen. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's metrically kind of weird, but there you go. Poetry. Um, all right. So there's some. This 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 analogy is going to break down very very fast. Um, but the point is, there's some who saw it as a meta duck and some saw it as a meta rabbit. Um, and then there are those. Once you start letting that possibility in, though, it's unstoppable, because it could very well be that James wanted some people to wanted everyone to see it as ambiguous, but wanted some people to think that he didn't want it to be seen as ambiguous and wanted some people to think he did want it to be seen as ambiguous. And then he wanted some people to think that he wanted some people to think that he wanted them to see it as ambiguous, but he wanted other people to think that he didn't want anyone to think and certainly didn't want anyone to think that other people should think that it was ambiguous, etc. Um, and um, what we feel like is um, that we're dealing with um, an intelligence that we don't quite understand in turn of the screw. And we don't know why we don't understand it. Um, if we did know why, we would understand it. Um, but we don't know why, and that's why we don't understand it. Um, so it's worth, um, but it's worth seeing whether you know, it's, it's, it's obviously appealing to a certain kind of English teacher like me um, to see it as endlessly ambiguous and intentionally so. Um, but it's, it's worth seeing if we can um, give arguments either way. Um, and also worth seeing whether we would prefer it. Remember um, the idea that a work, that the best guide to interpreting a work is to make it the best work it possibly can be. Um, the best work something possibly can be um, is is what um, what you would want, and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the work you would write. Um, one thing that a good work will do is teach you a different way of understanding or appreciating a work. So the best work a work can possibly be might be one that changes your mind about what it would mean for it to be the best work that it could possibly be. Um, it's, the point is it's not projection. It's not that what you're doing is saying, 
oh, well, you know, I really like it when um, people are happy, so I'm going to assume that this is a happy ending. Or, oh, I really like sad stories, so I'm going to assume this is a sad story. You know, the sort of um, when you don't know whether a couple is going to stay together at the end of something or not. Um, but it's not a question of what you really like. It's a question of what makes the work have the teach you the most could be part of the question um, of what makes the work the, the best possible work it can be. What makes it teach you the most about what a good work is? What makes, what makes it teach you the most about, to put it simply, let's say, about what poetry can do or about what fiction can do, about what art can do, um, about what thinking can do? Um, that is one of the things that goes into your um, evaluation of what makes a work good. So it's not a simple thing. It's not just, um, oh, that would be too sad, so, I would, so I'm against it. Um, what you might say is, that's really sad. I didn't know before this that I might think that a sad work was better than a happy one. That's something kids learn um, in life. It's, uh, you know, all the anxiety about whether Harry Potter was going to die. Do you, you guys were too young for that? But no? No, no, I mean when the books hadn't been published yet? You were all, okay. Um, no, I guess that's right. You must have been. Um, so there's all this anxiety. Will she kill him or won't she? What's going to happen? Will she kill Dumbledore? Um, everyone thought they knew that Ron Weasley was going to die. Do you remember that? Um, yeah. Um, and... One of the questions that, that um, people, that you guys probably ask yourself in one way or another is um, in, in your anxiety about whether Harry was going to die or not um, was what you trusted her to write something good. And the question was, would it really be good if Harry died? And you probably had a nagging fear that on some level that would be really good even though you'd be against it. Um, that is, that that's what a good work would require, is something like that tragic ending. That would make his life serious, but you'd also be against it. Um, and, and there, um, your sense that it might be good even though you're against it, um, you know, luckily she didn't do that. Oh, spoiler. It's not really a spoiler, but Snape get uh, um, everyone knows what happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Snape kills Dumbledore, you all know that? But Snape's okay? Aww. Damn, I, I mean, know. no, he's not. Oh, you mean morally? Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, in all those cases, um, there comes a time when we, let's say, realize that having um, death in a story makes it better. Um, even, if we're, even if we don't want it to be there, it makes it better. Um, and therefore, the death of a character might be something that we don't want to happen, but that we realize that it's a better story if it does happen. But that's partly because we've changed from what we were when we were very young in thinking about what makes something a good story. Um, we might add a dimension, let's say a dimension of moral depth, a dimension of truthfulness in our sense of evaluating what happens in a story. Um, 
Shakespeare very famously in King Lear changed the ending of his sources so that this isn't really a spoiler, but um, Lear and Cordelia die. Um, it's, it is the tragedy of King Lear, so I don't think. Um, and um, in the sources that he used, they live. They, don't, they, they aren't defeated at the end. At the end, they're victorious. Um, and the great English critic, Dr. Johnson, said that um, he was so, when he first read, what happened was in the, in the middle of the 17th century, um, after the restoration of Charles II, do people know about this? There's, um, so after the restoration of Charles II, um, the theaters had been closed in England for 18 years, and now Charles was reopening them, and they needed material, and so they did a lot of remakes. Um, his, the playwrights had been in France, they learned French ways of writing plays and French rules, and then they read this guy Shakespeare who was, um, you know, clearly really great, but also just so primitive. Um, a diamond in the rough is what they called him, an uncut diamond. So they rewrote his plays. Um, and the most notorious rewrite was by a guy named Nahum Tate, um, who, uh, took King Lear and um, returned it to its happy ending in the original uh, historical chronicles, um, got rid of the most interesting character in Lear, namely the fool, um, or certainly the, the most extremely interesting character in Lear, um, and um, gave it a happy ending where Cordelia gets married happily to um, Edgar and they become king and queen of England and Lear and Edgar's father both of whom die in the play, go off to talk philosophically about how things have worked out and how strange history is, but how God makes things come right at the end. And um, this was the version that was performed on stage for 150 years. And Dr. Johnson, 80 years later, and Johnson really is probably the greatest English critic, 80 years later he is doing an edition of Shakespeare and writing a preface, very famous preface to Shakespeare as well as notes to the plays. And um, he says that for the death of King Lear, um, or it's actually the death of Cordelia, um, he says um, that the first time he read Shakespeare's play as a youth as opposed to Nahum Tate's version, um, he was so shocked, he says, I was so shocked by the death of Cordelia. Shakespeare suffered Cordelia to die in a good cause, contrary to all our principles of justice. I was, when I, for, if I could add my own um, uh, views to that of the public, which prefers Tate, uh, what I could say was that when I first read this play, I was so shocked by the death of Cordelia that I do not know that I've been able to endure reading it a single time between that time and this now that I'm editing it for, the, for this, um, my edition of Shakespeare's plays. So Johnson thought that Shakespeare did something wrong. Um, he, thought Shakespeare, he thought Tate made it a better play. Um, what we tend to think reading Johnson is the fact that Johnson found the play unbearably tragic the way Shakespeare wrote it is pretty good evidence that Shakespeare's version is right and that Tate's version is wrong. But that means that you have to change your sense of what, of value, that if you find something unbearably tragic, um, there comes a time in your life when you decide that's a plus, not a minus, in your evaluation of something. Say something about society. 
What does it say about society? We like things unbearably tragic. Well, um, it might, that is, it might be that different um, cultural moments um, have different preferences. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's in part a matter of preference. Like, I, like, I feel like I can definitely recognize the value in something that is tragic because, I mean, I don't want to, like, go into my own life too much, but, like, I feel like since I'm an actor, like, understanding the emotional and value of how something affects you is important, but, like, my mom is 60 years old and she doesn't like anything without a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, does she like Shakespeare at all? Yeah. But just the comedies, or...? She likes it all, but, like, would not go to see anything but the comedies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and does she, so, but, but, okay, so here's a way of, of, of saying it, which is that one thing that happens in the history of our, um, of our valuations of works of art is that there can be um, a um, divergence between what we like and what we value. Um, it's like, um, do people know who Calvin Trillin is? Uh, he's a New Yorker writer famous for um, a series of books of, um, in praise of junk food. Um, and uh, one, one, of the t one of his titles is Honey, Let's Eat. Um, and uh, he, just, he just really likes um, well done junk food. And by well done, that means unstinting. Um, unstinting in its junkiness. So it's not Doritos, but it's, it's uh, Kansas City barbecue is like his favorite thing in the whole world. I mean, real, in Kansas City. Um, and it's not that he thinks that this food is better than haute cuisine. Um, he's had haute cuisine and he knows how amazing it is. Um, it's just he likes it better. And I think that we, in our, in our experience, in our aesthetic experience, we have that experience too. That um, it's uh, there's stuff we like better and stuff we value more. And um, sometimes the fact that we value something more actually trumps the fact that we that we might like something better. Um, you can't live just as you can't live on a diet of Doritos. You can't live on a diet. Uh, well, some people do, but you can't live on a diet of of um, Family Guy. Um, yeah. But on any particular evening, you might decide that you'd rather watch an episode of Family Guy um, to um, a new BBC Shakespeare. Um, in fact, it may be that, that if you took any evening in isolation, that's what you would prefer. That to decide that you're going to watch Shakespeare instead of Family Guy, um, you have to have watched a bunch of Family Guy and OD'd on it. Um, or you have to have not watched Shakespeare for a while and realize that you have a hunger for it, even though um, that's a difficult thing to do, um, a more difficult thing to do. So liking and valuing, that's, that, there's a difference in that also, and that's really, really crucial, a really crucial thing to understand, that what we like best and what we value most are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and the question, which trumps which? Will we always do what we like better? The answer is no, clearly we won't. Um, any, any experience of human life shows that anyone with any self-command will sometimes do the thing 
often do the things they value more than the things they like more. Um, and that's a really important thing to see, that, that, that valuations and liking don't go together, but they can be weighed against each other. Um, you're weighing apples and oranges, but you can put apples on one side of a scale and oranges on another side of the scale. That's not a problem. Um, so you can weigh liking and, um, and valuing against each other. And what happens in aesthetic experience is there does come to be a place where there's, a, where there's some divergence between liking and valuing. Any work you value, you have to like to some extent. Any work that you like, you have to value to some extent. Um, but the, the proportions of liking and valuing can be different. Um, and there can be works that you don't like that much. Um, why? Because Cordelia and Lear die. Um, and I just don't like that. But you really value it. Or there can be works which you like a lot but don't value very much. You know, what fun, what fun to, to um, do a South Park marathon. Um, but on the other hand, it's not, it's not valuable fun. So um, when we say that a work of literature should be the one that you value most, that doesn't mean that it's what you, that you could just decide what you would like to have happened in it if you don't know what's happened in it. You may decide that you would like, let's say, um, Pip and Estelle. I mean, the, I'm, take this example. Do people know this, Great Expectations? Um, well, at the end of Great Expectations, this is not, not really a spoiler, but um, at the end of Great Expectations, the um, boy and girl either do or don't stay together. Um, and some people want to think that they do stay together, and some people want to think that they don't. Um, those who want to think that they do stay together want to think that because we all would like the idea of their staying together, but those who think that they oughtn't to stay together think it becomes a, just a silly sentimental ending if they do. Um, that is, that, that uh, everything in the book is about learning that life doesn't work that way. Um, and then at the very end, oh, but in this case, life will work that way. That's fine. Um, maybe not. Um, Dickens, very conveniently, wrote great expectations and publish it and they don't stay together. I mean, they clearly don't. Um, and his public got so pissed off because they really wanted them to stay together um, that, that he and his publisher and everyone else was just drowned in a blizzard of, of letters saying, no, 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 this is terrible. Um, and his publisher said, Chuck. So it came out in magazines, but now it's going to come out as a book. And his publisher said, really, Mr. Dickens, couldn't you? And so he rewrote the last two pages so that they do stay together. Um, dividing critics from then on, those who say, no, Dickens rewrote it. That's his final word. He wanted them to stay together, and they did. And others saying, Dickens ruined a really great novel by giving in to the pressure of the crowd. And what we should do is read the version which he doesn't ruin. Um, his first version, the one he meant. Um, and it's a debate, yeah. How many editions are published with both endings? Uh, it, any standard edition, like even signet editions, will give you both, but they'll always give you one as the appendix. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you guys do this with DVDs now, too, right? Yeah, I was... I know that I read the, the, um, the edited 
alternate version was the was the one that was the, the real one. You mean the second version, the happy version? Yeah, and I just thought it was so ridiculous. Yeah, and you and you preferred the original version. Yeah, um, but preferred as in, weren't you a little bit happy though? That I wasn't Yeah, um, but it all got fixed in those last in that last page and a half. It was all just a terrible misunderstanding, and how they loved each other, and it was good. No, all right. Um, well, but that's the thing. So, but you had a you felt that you had a choice, and that there there was a place where your own aesthetic um, opinion mattered. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you guys know that there are two endings to Casablanca, although one of them was never shot. So do people know Casablanca? It's actually, what, the 75th anniversary, like this week of Casablanca. Um, so in the, there's the ending that was shot, um, which is just sublime. You know, Casablanca may be, um, it's not the greatest movie ever made, but it may be the most perfect movie ever made, um, which goes, which is, which, which, which is an important component of greatness. Um, it is a great movie, and it's certainly a perfect movie. And it's got an ending where um, if you don't have a heart of stone, you'll choke up. Um, and even if you do have a heart of stone, you may choke up. Um, but the other ending was, was um, the ending that we were kind of hoping for throughout the movie. And what happened was they decided they were going to shoot both and see which one worked better. Um, and then they shot the ending that we have, and they watched it that night just to see how it worked. And they said, no, this is it. We don't even have to shoot the other one, um, which was good. But just imagine that there were two endings, um, and that the DVD gave you both, um, the way DVDs do now, um, alternate ending. Um, the very idea of an alternate ending, um, what do you guys think of that? Do you like alternate endings? Oh, I hate that it so much. On, Uh huh. Um, and the ending that they gave is um, when Peter leaves the first time, and then you never really know whether he comes back. Yeah. Ever comes back. Yeah. But the alternate one is when he comes back and she's older. Yeah. Yeah. So. So which did you prefer? That I think that it was um, hard to say because I think they kind of did it well. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the question is, which tragedy would you prefer? The one where you don't have to think about it or the one where you do? Um, Rachel. Yeah. Because maybe it presents something new that you never would have thought about, like that. You know, like maybe if Peter Pan just vanishes, you you think, oh, he'll come back, and one day we'll take him back one day. But when you see it laid out for you, it takes away. It takes that away, and but it might be a little more valuable that you see, oh, he really never does. Like he can't grow up. It's 
But he'll always be safe in Neverland. Yeah, so yeah. I think, I don't know, I think it can go both ways. I think you can like an alternate ending and not value it, and vice versa, or both. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Maria? Um, I kind of feel like they're a cop-out, in a way. Alternate endings. Yeah. yeah. That the, whoever created the movie, or like with Dickens, it's like they're just giving in, they don't want people to get mad at them. It's like, oh, let's give up both options and let them <laughs> choose. We don't have to deal with it. Like, yeah. I don't know, for the Peter Pan thing, I think they should go with, like, what was originally written and uh-huh. run with that, because that was the original, and I don't know, I'm going to stick with it for that kind of thing. Okay. Not change the ending. I just think, it, I just think it's a cop-out to give people multiple options. The so, but... The original Peter Pan movie wasn't what was written in the book. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, like, because the movie just flies away and you don't know what happens, but you're supposed to come back and find her a really old thing, so... A movie definitely allows something of a reboot, which is which is sometimes a really good thing. Um, alternate endings don't reboot, and that's part of the problem with them. Yeah. Did you feel that way about the never ending story? No, because the thing is that it like was continuous. Yeah, like, the story right. itself was part continuous of the with the yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. whole like amazing part of it was that it turned out that there wasn't that both things were a story. Right, right. And I really, really love that. Yeah. But like, I just hate the very idea of alternate endings because then as soon as you get there, the story stops being like real. Yeah. Because in life, that's not possible. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I think it's a yeah tricky decision for somebody making a, a movie to think of because once you say maybe this is not the right ending, then you allow people to question all parts of the movie. Right. So right. I think that's, it just makes it, lets people get too far into the, like, workings of the movie, uh-huh. and then they can just, like, destroy it. And then, but notice that what they do is they have different names for different types of um, alternates. So on the one hand, there's the original, the original theatrical release, and you think, that's the real thing. But people who don't want that to be the real thing will get the director's cut, <laughs> because that's the real thing. But people who don't want either the original theatrical release or the director's cut will get alternate ending that the studio says you should really consider, because this might be the real thing. But in all cases, I think, um, to some extent, what we want is a real thing. And we don't want to treat all of these things as, as equally valuable. Um, so that's what, what's interesting about that is it does show our desire to value as part of what our aesthetic interpretive response is. Just on the simplest question of what happened, um, a desire to value is part of um, making a decision among those as to which one is the real thing. The way Isabel decided that Dickens' original was the real thing and the other was just ridiculous. Um, you value one and that's an interpretive choice. Yeah. I think a good example of that is <coughs> if you ever seen Dodgeball. Yeah. The alternate ending to Dodgeball. I don't know. I have a, don't, oh, just, no. 
Yeah. What happens? They just lose. <gasps> he steps on the line and that's it. Well, that sounds right, though. Yeah, Doesn't it make it better? Yeah, well, it's it's funny because it's so like disheartening. You're like, that can't really happen. Yeah. But you're like, I'm so happy they wanted to originally do that. Right. So it's just, yeah, you know, you're, yeah. you're like compelled and you're like pulled in one way but right. you're pushed in the other. Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of like the terror heist. What's that? That, uh, that was that Ben, another Ben Stiller. Another ben, that's what brought yeah. it up, yeah. Another Ben Stiller movie where... Um, in the end, he goes to jail. It's not really a spoiler or anything. Um, it's not really a spoiler. But, but you can imagine an alternate ending where he doesn't. I mean, it wouldn't take much. I don't know. I don't think it's out on DVD yet. No, uh, I, think, I think it is because I, I like, saw it on, on... Is that on Blu-ray? No, I'm like, All right, maybe I'm in Blue Ray. And they had, like, they said, and I think there were, like, multiple alternate endings. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, there haven't. I didn't happened. watch any of them, though. Yeah. I mean, it's partly, partly you have, to, you have to get a sense of satisfaction. A very famous example of this, and then we'll, we'll take this, we'll, we'll see how far we've turned the screw, is um, <laughs> that Hitchcock did a movie called Suspicion. Do people know about this? Um, not his greatest movie, but a good movie with Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine. Cary Grant is, it's, it's in fact probably strongly influenced by Turn of the Screw, um, but it's certainly in that mode. Cary Grant is, um, well, you know, the greatest film actor ever. Um, not, not in the way you guys say the greatest film actor ever, um, but really the greatest film actor ever. Not the greatest film actor ever for five minutes. Um, and um, he's... Everyone loves him. And in this movie, he plays um, a charming ne'er-do-well um, who marries a, young, a, 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 a shy and anxious young woman for her money. Um, and he's quite frank about that. Um, he says, well, of course, you know, your money means a lot to me. Um, mm. But it also seems to be the case that um, he actually genuinely likes her and gets to like her more and more in the course of the movie. Um, but he's also lying to her about how broke he is. And um, he's taking money from her and doing all sorts of things. And we just don't know what to think about him. Um, that is, is he just a, a, a charming devil? Or is he a devilish charmer? Um, and she doesn't know what to think about him, whether he's a charming devil or a devilish charmer. Um, and in the course of the movie, it looks more and more like he's trying to kill her um, in order to take her money. And there's a very famous scene, just a gorgeous and beautiful scene, one of Hitchcock's greatest scenes. One of Hitchcock's 5,000 greatest yeah. scenes. But they are great. He has 5,000 utterly great scenes where uh, he might be poisoning her or not. And uh, she's sick, maybe because he's poisoning her. Um, and she, he says, here, let me go get you a glass of milk. And it's done perfectly where it's either real concern or really scary that he's going to insist that she drink this glass of milk. And she's just too exhausted to give up, to, to, to not to give up. She says, okay, she'll have it. And the scene is he goes downstairs and he's coming up the stairs holding this glass of milk with a, with a kind of pleased with himself smile on his face. Is he pleased with himself because he got his poor sick wife to agree to drink this glass of milk, or is he pleased with himself because he got this woman he's trying to murder to drink this glass of milk, which will put the finishing touches on the murder. Um, and a friend of his has died under somewhat suspicious circumstances. Um, so up, he comes up the stairs, 
And the shot is Hitchcock put a light, painted a glass white and put a light bulb inside. Um, so this is the really famous technical thing that Hitchcock did. Um, so that it's just glowing um, as this glass of milk is just glowing as Cary Grant is coming up the stairs holding it. Um, and everyone is riveted by this. And she drinks the milk and, you know, various other things happen. Um, <laughs> and if you, if you, no, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you the ending. It's still worth watching. Um, so if you get the movie on DVD or if you watch it in the movie theater or whatever, it turns out that she was wrong, that all the suspicious things he did had an explanation. And um, that, yeah, he was hiding things from her, but what he was hiding from her, you know, the, real, the really hard thing to figure out is why is he buying all this rat poison, uh, <laughs> which he's piling up, stockpiling. Um, and it turns out that he felt so bad about having been... De been um, um, a charming, a, a devilish charmer, a charming devil. Uh, he felt so bad about being a charming devil, and he'd gotten them into such bad trouble financially that he decided the only thing he'd do was kill himself. Um, and so he was. Do so this was actually going to be an altruistic gesture of self-sacrifice on his part. He was going to kill himself in order to let her escape from the hash that he made because of his charming carelessness of their financial lives. Um, and um, so there's a lot of stuff that really needs explaining, but it all gets explained away as showing him to have greater depth of character than we realized. So this really splendid, charming person is also deep. That's always a good story when someone is splendid and charming and also deep. You guys know in the importance of being earnest um, that Cecily um, says that uh, she doesn't mind parting from an old friend but someone that she's just known for five minutes, that's, it's unbearable to part from such a person. Um, and um, that's because the first five minutes of knowing someone, that's when, that's when what's charming about them is what's great about them, and it's unbearable. You know, there's this pure promise in a new person. Um, but you can't have that in a person you've known for a while. Unless there's something beyond pure promise, the promise is defeated. Um, so for a person you've known for, for a while, especially in fiction, but I think in real life too, um, it really matters that you start discovering depths in them. And you don't have that original sparkling novelty, which is so great. Um, but depth instead is what comes in. That's again a question of liking and valuing. Um, so what Cecily is saying is she really likes new people because they're so charming and, 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 and splendid and, and lovely, and this is just a great experience. Um, but of course, we value depth, not novelty. So we like novelty, but value depth. In literature as in life, we like novelty, but value depth. Um, so Cary Grant turns out to be deep in suspicion. We didn't know that at first. Um, and there's explanations, really quite moving explanations, of everything he's done. And um, she says, I can't believe I was so suspicious of you. And we get the you know, cue, the music swelling, and not a dry eye in the house except mine. Um, and, um, and it's a happy ending. And, and um, it, it's, it's, it's a happy but deep ending, and it's all good. Um, in the original version of the movie, it turns out Cary Grant is a murderer. Um, and the glass of milk contains poison. And the original version was she was suspicious of him, and so she wrote a letter saying, if I die, um, 
in the next little while. Look for the following, do an autopsy and look for the following poison. Um, because I think my husband may be trying to kill me, um, but only, and, and she, and um, it's a letter within a letter and it's basically only open this if, if I'm dead. Um, and so he comes up with a glass of milk and um, she says, before she drinks it, she says to him, would you mind posting that letter for me if you're going out? And he says, sure. So she drinks the milk um, and says, uh, I'm feeling kind of crappy again. I'm going to go to sleep. And he says, okay, darling, I'll see you later. Then he goes back down the stairs and he's very pleased with himself because she's about to die, takes the letter, drops it in the mailbox, um, having no idea that he's screwing himself at that moment, and that's the end. Um, so Hitchcock showed that to um, a test audience, and they just utterly loathed it. Um, and the studio said, no way, Jose. No way, Alfred Zay. Um, and um, they made him do this other ending. And so he did the other ending. And what's quite brilliant about the, about the wrong ending is that um, he does manage to figure out a way to explain everything away. Um, that is, it seems impossible that Cary Grant is innocent. But Hitchcock does figure out, you know, the, so the rat poison was for himself and everything else he did was um, all had an innocent explanation or at least a deep explanation. Do um, you see the original in like the Criterion? No, it doesn't exist. It, um, it was burned. People hated it so much um, <laughs> that there are only accounts of it, but there's no, um, the, the footage doesn't, doesn't like exist. Like Wells film? Yeah, yeah, like the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, but, um, so there then there's a question of which one is better. And you could argue that the, that the, that the revised version is better because if it's just going to turn out that everything we thought he might be doing, he really was doing, um, that's perverse. On the other hand, one thing that we value in late Hitchcock is his perversity in a movie like The Birds or a movie like Psycho, which I won't tell you anything if you haven't seen um, about. But boy, are those perverse movies. Um, and boy, is Hitchcock playing with the genre of this kind of movie making. Um, so in Turn of the Screw, to get back to what you were saying, um, one thing you might decide is that if James is intentionally writing something ambiguous, um, then it may feel artificial. I mean, not that the book doesn't feel artificial, but it doesn't matter that it feels artificial. It feels artful instead of artificial. It feels like art. Um, and that, that can mean it can be very deep, even if it's not naturalistic. Um, but if it turns out that he's just really being careful to prevent you from knowing what's, what's gone on. If that's the meta duck that we decide on, that he doesn't want it to be soluble, then you may feel, but these amazing characters turn out just to be pawns in a game that James is playing. That would be terrible. If, close your ears if you don't want to hear this part. Um, you probably already know it. She does. If Miles um, dies uh, for one reason, or if he dies for another reason, um, it may just be that his death is just kind of prescribed by James's need to keep the ambiguity going, instead of being something sad. We can say, "Oh yeah, Miles has to die because that's the only way that that we can never figure out what happened. If he didn't die, we could figure it out." Um, and um, 
but he does die, so we can't figure it out. So that's why James has him die. And it's not really sad, it's just a technical requirement of the game that James is playing. So it would turn the book into a game, say those who were against the idea that James was intentionally ambiguous. It would just become a game. And that would be an argument that intentional ambiguity makes it a less valuable book than if it's not intentionally ambiguous. And if it's not intentionally ambiguous, then we can argue about what is it supposed to be, what is it supposed to mean. It might still be ambiguous to some extent, but the odds are that it's not going to be perfectly ambiguous if it's not intentional. Things aren't perfectly ambiguous unless they are intentional. So now we could argue, well, is it perfectly ambiguous or not? Now, there's no question, and this is, this is uh, let's just get to um, where we were last time, and we'll start class now. Oh, my dear. Um, there's no question that there is um, intentional ambiguity, that the book is shot through with intentional ambiguity. No one doubts that. Um, but that's true of any mystery. That is something, and this is a mystery. It's a ghost story, but it's also a mystery. What we may not know is which it really is, a ghost story or mystery. Um, but that's because their ghost stories and mysteries are overlap with each other to an enormous amount, to an enormous extent. So in any mystery, there ha and in any ghost story, I think there has to be ambiguity. There have to be multiple interpretations of things that happen until the very end. In any mystery, it will look like everything is consistent with the butlers having done it, um, but then at the very end the detective will show that what we hadn't realized was that everything was also consistent with the uncles having done it. Um, and um, finally the last little piece of evidence that proved that it was the uncle and not the butler was the only thing that was consistent with one but not the other, with the uncle but not the butler. That tiny little clue that we'd missed but they could only be consistent with the uncle and inconsistent with the butlers having done it. So any mystery is going to be ambiguous until the solution comes. So here's, and James wants us, it's also clear that he wants us to see there's ambiguity here, that we shouldn't assume we know the ghosts exist. Um, when he has that ambiguity about who the him is, that is a pronoun comes up. That's his way. I mean the masters, but of whom did you speak at first? Why, of him. Um, and then later we realize, no, she's speaking about Peter Quint. Um, but that when you use a pronoun, James is saying, don't be sure that when someone, when someone says something in this book to the governess and uses a pronoun when they say it, that we know who that pronoun refers to, that the governess is right about who the pronoun refers to. So the question does... Um, do the ghosts exist? Partly, that's going to turn into a question to the extent that this is a mystery story, and there might be um, characters who are nefarious. That is, Miles and Flora might be nefarious. Um, the question, um, do the ghosts exist, is going to be partly a question, um, <coughs> do, are Miles and Flora trying to fool the governess into thinking they don't exist? And is what Miles and Flora do consistent 
Well, Miles and Flora clearly do things which are consistent with their not seeing ghosts throughout. The question is, do they do those things because they see ghosts or because they don't? And that's the mystery. Are they doing those things because they're innocent or because they're not innocent? That's the very simple crime story mystery about this. Are they doing those things because they're innocent or because they're not innocent? Um, and everything that looks like it proves they're not innocent, the story's no good unless it turns out that the governess can say, but wait a second, that's not proof yet. Everything which looks like they're innocent, um, the story's no good unless the governess will say, but wait a minute, they might have staged that. When Miles blows the candle out or says he did, is it because he um, actually does have a streak of naughtiness in him? Or is he claiming to have a streak of naughtiness in order to prevent the governess from seeing what's really happening? Um, all of every single action like that, every interaction between the governess and the children, you can ask that question about. But that doesn't prove that the ending is ambiguous. That just proves that, like in any good mystery novel, James doesn't want us to know what happens until the ending and won't solve the ambiguity until the last pages. So finish it, you guys, you two, um, for Wednesday. Um, we're going to talk about two scenes on Wednesday and Thursday, and then by hook or by crook, we'll be done. You want to practice tonight?